0: To because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. I could listen to my next guest talk for hours. Nigan Sinclair is an Anishinaabe author, educator, columnist, and academic based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. A leading voice in Indigenous teachings and knowledge, Nigan is an incredible resource when it comes to maintaining Indigenous stories, languages, and general information. I sat down with Nigan Sinclair to talk about his work as a professor and columnist, what we can learn from Indigenous ways of knowing, and how to have the difficult conversations that need to happen for reconciliation to take place. Nigan Sinclair, thank you for joining us on the Because and Effect podcast. It's an honour to have you and to be able to speak with you today.
1: I mean, watch Nolan. Thanks for having me. I've been uh, very excited and wanting to be part of this for a while with the Winnipeg Foundation. So I'm happy to be here.
0: I've seen you at quite a few events for the Winnipeg Foundation. Most recently, uh, we were at the Casey Adams art installation. That was uh, unveiled in the last uh, last week, I think that was, and as well, the meeting space, which is another beautiful area. We've actually got you uh, narrating a a video that I'm putting out today. So I'll I'll tag you in that on on social and everything. But how did how did uh, what was your role in sort of having these projects come together and helping KC and setting up the meeting space there? And, And and how was how are you connected to those things? So in
1: about 2000, well, actually, really since about 2014, Uh, Paul Jordan, uh, the CEO of the Forks, uh, has been calling me um, due to a number of events that we met at and shared some ideas and some thoughts. And he's been soliciting my advice on how to handle uh, the Forks as a space, because while the Forks uh, for a long time in the history, uh, and I'm writing a book on this, uh, about the history of downtown Winnipeg and the history of Winnipeg. Uh, the history the you know indigenous peoples the presence alone is six thousand years in the history of the forks however of course our stories are much longer than that time immemorial and so on um you know and so that that space uh while it has become a tourist destination and very much occupied previously by train tracks and so on uh, paul has called me a number of times because of the times indigenous peoples have reoccupied our own space, the space that we have always been occupying for thousands of years, and so uh, much of that has involved a lot of conflict, a lot of marches, a lot of demonstrations, a lot of round dances, a lot of celebrations as well. And so Paul has solicited my advice on how to handle certain things that have come up over the years. And then what ended up happening after a while is I kept making jokes like well I'm basically an employee of the forks and (laughs) one day he turned to me and said, we would like you to be an employee of the forks. And so they hired me to be the Indigenous curator. So uh, what I do with the Forks is I handle basically everything Indigenous. And what that means is, while there is wonderful Indigenous programming completely op- outside of my purview, have been in a long time, uh, Clarence and Barbara Niepenack is a good example, doing some great work there with storytelling and touring and so on. Um, my job is to bring as much Indigenous content, presence, uh, community to the space of the forks in everything that they do so I've trained all of the staff uh, all of the business owners I've uh, spent a great deal of time working on the history of the site I'm continuing to work on that history and then of course there's the installations you've been talking about which are things like Nimama, which is the uh, massive entry to the former formerly known as the South Point but we now know as Nijo Sibin which means two rivers named by Clark Clarence Nibenak and uh, uh, the gathering space or what is really known as a uh, wigwam all right so it's an old wigwamik which is meaning our lodge and uh, of course the many other installations involving Jamie Isaac Casey Adams and Val Vint Uh, all of which the Winnipeg Foundation has had roles in creating, uh, funding for the most part. We've been in charge of the artistic side, the curatorial side. Julie Nagum has been really pivotal in, uh, Julie's one of my very close friends, and I trust Julie immensely. And Julie has been overseeing much of the art installations. I'm in charge of the making sure everything runs smoothly (laughs) and making sure all the stakeholders are on board and making sure that the momentum is continuing with the project. Julie's in charge of the artistic side so, uh, and in collaboration with me, all of these wonderful installations, including the latest, latest one by Casey Adams, uh, which is just a wonderful piece. And um, it's really talking about relationships, it's talking about treaty, it's talking about the history of the Winnipeg Foundation as well. All of those elements live within that piece. And then, of course, Val Vince's piece, which is Education is the New Buffalo. Uh, it's a wonderful piece as well. It's on Nijo Bean, and it's right near where the Wigwamic, which is. So, uh, Yeah, uh, all of those different installations. We've also put up signage throughout the entire uh, site of the forks in all. uh, Well, you can't do all indigenous languages of Manitoba, just simply because the signs would be so massive. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what we've been doing is we've been using a rotation of indigenous languages throughout the site so that we have presence of Dakota, uh, uh, Anishinaabe, Cree, Michif, Uh, throughout the site, so that there's been elements that have been existing throughout the site as well. Um, Yeah, probably Dakota the least, only because uh, there's a long history of the history of Nakota Dakota peoples in Winnipeg, which really ends in 1783. It's not that they don't use this territory any longer, just that they retreated from this territory. So oftentimes uh, we privilege Anishinaabe Cree and Michif in most of the signage that we do. Uh, Today, So, you know, that's just a little bit of examples of what I do at the Forks. Uh, It's one of my many titles. Of course, I work for the Winnipeg Free Press as well, so I've been able to bring public attention to the work that we're doing at the Forks. Um, The original name for the Forks, by the way, isn't the Forks. Uh, The Cree name is Nestowea, which means three points, and it talks about the place that people have always come for thousands and thousands of years from the north, from the south, and from the west.
0: Well, that history is so important to, to Winnipeg, to Manitoba, to Canada in general. And you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that history and the languages and everything that's intertwined with it. Have you always been passionate about, about that history or has that come sort of later in your career? Um,
1: you know, like I, I always feel like I know so little, you mm. know. And um, people are always saying like, "Hey, can you give give us tours?" Like, I get calls every couple of days to give them for people. To, for me, to, I should do running a tour. I should run a tour service or something. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I don't consider myself an expert. Um, I just am a good listener, and uh, I've been able to listen to people really remarkable people, uh, people like Charlie Nelson. Uh, uh, you know people like Jason Parento and people like the Nipanaks, Clarence and Barbara Nipanak, and uh, you know the late Mary Richard. You know just remarkable people who have a great deal of knowledge in the downtown area. From my own family, from the Daywin people in my own family, my parents, my aunties and uncles, and so on. And so, you know, I've been I've I'm a product of this place. I am the most Manitoban of Manitobans. Like there's. Nobody more Manitoban than me. And I I say that both facetiously, but is the truth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my father and uh, my father's line comes from uh, Norway House in the north and also comes from Manicotogan. And so, you know, on each side of Lake Winnipeg, we have presence. Uh, And then, of course, coming down. Uh, my father, uh, my grandfather, was a non-status Indian, and so my father decided to join the Métis Federation in the 1970s, and he became the vice president of the uh, Interlake uh, um, sector of the Métis. And so, uh, so we have Cree from Norway House, we have Ojibwe from Manitoba, and my dad while is not a Métis person, certainly was a part of the Métis Federation. So we have Métis and many, many, many people in my family claim to be Métis or or claim status as Métis. So I mean, I got all the bingo card covered, you know, in, in terms of Indigenous peoples. And then of course, on my mother's side, British and French, I've got the British family, the Warren family from Regina going all the way back to Britain, and the Gamache family from the Paw connected all the way back to France, the Gamache, so French through the Paw, English through Regina, like, I've got it all. There's nothing, Mm -hmm. the only thing I'm really missing is Dakota Lakota people. That's the only thing I'm really missing. And my mother, my other mother, uh, she has uh, deep relationships with the Dakota Lakota peoples. So I got it all in my family. There's nobody missed. And (laughs) what I mean is, is that, you know, like I've been surrounded by this really vibrant history and Mm -hmm. I've been surrounded by storytellers and I've been surrounded by people who tell me stories all the time. And of course I come from Selkirk, which in 1907, was a former reserve, and, it, and we were forcibly removed off the land, and my family ended up staying. So, in fact, we're going to go visit my homestead tomorrow—the original homestead of my family.
0: That was Peguis First Nation, Peguis. Well, yeah, or, that's Peguis yeah. First Nation. Okay, so yeah.
1: we were forcibly removed to Peguis First Nation from the what was you know before known as Selkirk. So, you know, I've been surrounded by storytellers, historians, PhD level elders, you know. And then at the same time i've also been this product of manitoba history i've been this product of people coming together indigenous and non-indigenous peoples i've also been a product of colonialism in that i was i was the product of ethnic cleansing you know in manitoba we had the ethnic cleansing uh, and we have to call it what it really was i mean this is not something that happened in the middle east or in africa or asia this is something that happened right here in manitoba People were forcibly removed off the land after having been racially profiled by the Canadian state and targeted, and their land was stolen. That's us. That's my community. Mm-hmm. So I'm a product of removal. I am a refugee. And, you know, to, 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 to take all those terms has been a long journey for me of dealing with my own shame and my own ignorance of having not been taught that history in schools and having mm-hmm. to hear it around the tables around smoking you know, aunties and uncles sitting in the friendship center. Um, Here, you know, I probably heard more from the bingo hall mm-hmm. about my own history than I ever did in school.
0: Yeah,
1: that's because wild. I used to go with my auntie, and she'd have 48 bingo cards. And she would narrate me to me the history of our family, while
0: still keeping track of all the numbers that are while being called, still right? keep Oh, of course. Washington no, that Avenue. was the most important thing is keep track of the bingo. <laughs> that some watching some of those grandmas go at it is just like ridiculously impressive i can barely keep one card going and they've got like literally 36 going and it's wild um i want to drill i mean i'm so excited to talk to you because you are such a wealth of knowledge and what you mentioned there was the ethnic cleansing and i need you to help me sort of wrap my mind around and help me come to terms with what's been going on lately with the discovery and the ex the we're finally exposing 5,000 of these ch- children, you know. So a month ago it was all the rage on in my social media bubble. Everyone was saying, you know, wearing their orange shirts, talking about it. And then all of a sudden last week it's all Canadian flags and it's people celebrating the country and and I have a hard time putting these two concepts together because how can I celebrate something that is ha- has such a dark and disturbing history? So I'm just wondering your perspective on everything that's been exposed and all of, all of the mass graves that have been discovered. And it's finally in the mainstream consciousness and we're finally talking about it. But now we're now I'm seeing just tweets about, oh, Canada and all these people proud to be Canadian. And I I can't reconcile the two things in my brain at the same time. So can you help me come to terms with that at all?
1: Well, I don't know if I can help you, but. Um, here's what I can tell you is uh, there's lots of pictures floating around of the medal winners from Canada's Olympic team this year. And if you look at the picture of the the winners, they're 90% women and African Canadian people, Black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's important because what it tells you is two really important stories uh, that those two groups of people Uh, who have been historically disenfranchised in Canadian society uh, are the true linchpins, the true heroes of this year's Olympics. And that is a story that I'm not sure Canadians are ready to talk about or ready to acknowledge or ready to even think about, the fact that white men aren't the defining feature of Canada. And we may ask the question, have they ever been, even though they are on the dollar bills they're on all the historical records and the textbooks and the posters and, and continue to be the dominant forces in canadian parliament for example but the fact is that it may just be that canada is not defined by white men and that may be a hard truth to hear and people you know it's so funny uh, <clears throat> so many people call me angry or they want to call me a revolutionary like if you meet me I've got a cup right here talking about being a cat dad <laughs> like if people are scared of me let me tell you I, there are people who are much more scarier than me and what I mean by that is people who have no interest or investment in conversation or dialogue or education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's no one who loves this place that I know as much as myself there are lots of people who do love this place amazing people who have worked very hard, but you know, I like to think of myself as one of the proudest members of this community, people who like I'm 100% invested in this community and I'm invested in us all figuring out a way to live together. Mm -hmm. So, uh, when I say these things, it's of comes from deep love, deep admiration and deep commitment. And frankly, far more commitment than what I see from many people Mm -hmm. in our community, who are too busy thinking of how is it that we can, uh, you know, profit, send money elsewhere. How how is it that we can, uh, you know, take the the best parts of Manitoba and um, export it or use it for profit and exploitation, or frankly, divide relationships, aren't interested Mm -hmm. in relationships. I'm interested in having a treaty space where everybody is, is welcome. So that's what really is happening right now. While it may be scary, and it may be uncomfortable, and it may be at times upsetting what's happening right now with the discovery, and I use the word discovery for frankly non native people because native people have always known about these graves. They've always known that children went to the schools and have disappeared. Every community has a story of lost children. And so there was never a question of if children had been killed at the schools, it was a question of where are they that's for us that's Mm -hmm. for our community and we've been talking about that for centuries Mm -hmm. you know for a century and a half since the very beginning of the school that the schools we know about the lost children you know the tuberculosis epidemics Mm -hmm. the fact that children ran away Um, my column today is about children who had experienced slavery-like conditions working 16-hour days in boiler rooms running away because they don't want to work anymore like that's not a school there's nothing (laughs) educational about that in fact indian affairs used to write reports to say residential schools have no educational value, like Indian Affairs would write that. Um, children were running away a lot because of the death that was happening, and including murder. You know, they would watch their friends be murdered by the priests, they'd watch their friends be murdered by the older children, they would watch their friends starve to deaths. And when I what I mean by starving to death, often starve, which would result in disease or Mm -hmm. tuberculosis and then go die in the sanitarium. You know, these these schools were not invested in education whatsoever, not one second of it. Mm -hmm. They were invested in violence and the sooner that we can recognize and accept that truth, the sooner that we'll be be able to then move forward. So that discomfort, that discomfort of hearing about the deaths of children at residential school, uh, which is. Predominantly from the Canadian side, for Indigenous peoples, it's a kind of re-traumatization. It's a reminder of a truth, or it's an acceptance of a truth that we've always been talking about. For Canadians, that, that, that discomfort is what reconciliation looks like. It's that reality when you realize that Canada isn't the maple syrupy sweetness that the flag wants to purport, it may, be a play, it may be a piece of fabric stained with blood.
0: Yeah.
1: And yeah. that doesn't mean we take away from the successes of Canada. Like, I think the challenge that people have, if we are to use an Olympic reference, try this. You know, we can all be proud of Donovan Bailey or Desiree Scott or, uh, you know, the many other Olympians that have happened throughout time, uh, Clara Hughes or, or so on. We can all be proud of that. We can all be proud to say, they are one of us you know i I know clara hughes one of the most amazing olympians also somebody deeply embedded in the process of reconciliation and trying to live that within her own life but that doesn't mean that we we deny ethnic cleansing or, or violence or genocide that happened in residential schools what it does is it gives us a broader breadth of understanding that canada is a place where many things have happened complex things have happened and yes canada has been a country built on genocide Mm -hmm. built on the exploitation and the theft of Indigenous lands. And that doesn't mean that we somehow erase the successes of Canada. What it does is it tells us more about how the successes came to be. Mm. Meaning that those successes might not always be successes. Those successes might have come off the exploitation of a group of people. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that doesn't take away, but it gives us an understanding that with every success there is also sometimes a cost. And, and that cost can be violence. So maybe the success is not worth it. Right.
0: Very well said. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think, yeah, a lot of times the responses to your articles when you say like people are people kind of come after you instead of address the conversation that you're trying to start i think that's just indicative of people aren't ready to hear the harsh truths yet and then they just go after you instead. you know instead of addressing the points you're making and the conversation you're starting to have in and trying to acknowledge the past and, and the and, and the current state of things How, like is has that been a tr- you've been writing for the free press since 2018 i think
1: uh, I'm just going up to my third year, I think.
0: Cool. So so what is that like when you see the responses and they don't necessarily, you know, start the conversation maybe that you want to have, or, or maybe they do, but a lot of the times they're just coming after you or coming after, you know, something that's completely irrelevant to what you're writing about and what you're trying to trying to bring up.
1: Well, first off, you should never define yourself by ignorance, right? So mm-hmm. so if someone comes at you and they clearly don't know the issue, uh that's about the that's about the level of where I deal with. The, so for instance, uh, my piece today is about uh, that residential schools had uh, resident school. S- the work that students were doing in school would would represent and f- fits the definition of slavery. Right. And so we need to call residential schools what they are, which is not just places of genocide, but also places of slavery. And so, uh, and then, you know, the amount of ignorance this morning that I have in my inbox because of people just basically don't understand what slavery is, mm-hmm. and then second is they don't understand that there was no choice of children, I had one piece of email this morning going, uh, because in the, my column I talk about how children were forced in the paw to sell their their clothing door to door to make money for the residential school. Well, the whole problem is that the school was was radically underfunded. So you had children who were forced to work long days, and to be able to fund the school and basically their own servitude. So it's that's that's the definition of what African Americans had to do by pick, picking cotton in the field to support the slave owner to to commit to continue the slavery. That is exactly what residential school students were doing. They were selling the wares to to build the program, to continue their servitude. And so uh, this morning I got an email from a a viewer going, well, then you, by that definition, you call girl guides selling cookies slaves. Like that's about the level. So when I get an email like that, right, I, I know that the person doesn't understand the issue and they don't understand. They haven't thought about the issue and. I like to think of myself as asking people to think in ways they've never thought about before, because the Canadian education system has never encouraged Canadians to think of Indigenous peoples as human beings. That's the major problem is that uh, Indigenous peoples have been taught as basically foils or one dimensional savages and sitting and throwing spears. Think about your textbook, right? So uh, if you remember your grade six textbook, I and mean, mm-hmm. I used to I teach this with my students, I say, here's my grade six textbook, basically indigenous peoples make up the first five pages, and then they disappear. Or if they show up again, they're basically to sign treaty, or to move off the land. That's they're basically there only for the purposes of non native occupation, they're basically there to stand a little bit in the way that's the Northwest resistance Riel real and Dumont, and then to get defeated and then ultimately to sign the treaties to accept and legitimate non-Native presence on the land. So that's the story of Canada. Most Canadians have been taught that story, that Indigenous peoples are just kind of footnotes to history. Mm-hmm. They don't really matter. They're not human beings. They don't have complexity and diversity like people think of, for you know, British people, for example, or, or English people, or frankly, immigrant people. I mean, at least immigrant people get a bit of a uh, complexity, um, you know, somewhat anyways, you know, there are racial stereotypes in all groups and so on. But at least people who have immigrant stories can talk about they came from a place, came to here, and now they made a homestead, that kind of thing. Uh, For Indigenous peoples, it's basically Indigenous peoples existed. Non-Native people showed up and we disappeared. We died off and we disappeared. So I like to think of my work as telling uh, Canadians, think. Think about what this situation is. Here's a situation. I'll, uh, I might write about uh, poverty in the North End, for example, right? I might talk about life in tent cities. I go to tent cities a lot with the Mama Bear Clan, so I write a lot about that. Um, I might talk about uh, um, indigenous peoples making a business, like at Nietzsche Commons, right? I might talk about. Uh, um, uh, I, a different version of the ways in which we can think about the uh, the events of Canada Day this year where where for the first time in history we see an indigenous art installation on the grounds of the Manitoba legislature you know there is no representation of first nations people on the Manitoba legislature didn't first nations have something to do with Manitoba well apparently not according to the legislative grounds where there's no art pieces well on Canada Day people made the first art piece They tipped over the Queen Victoria, and they decided to put their handprints, and they decided to uh, edit that statue. I'd say that, you know, and by the way, that didn't cost taxpayers a dollar, not a penny. Mm -hmm. Like, name me the last art installation that didn't cost taxpayers a dollar. Uh, Seems like a pretty cool, interesting, and exciting development in our community. Now, a lot of people get angry when I say that. They say, oh, you're promoting vandalism, and you're promoting violence, and uh graffiti and whatever else no i'm getting people to think
0: yeah i i spoke with winnie Horn miller um a few i don't know if it was years ago or months ago covid kind of time warps a little bit and i asked her because she was uh, uh involved in the oka crisis in the ni- early 90s and was like part of the part of the part of the protests there and i just also, asked so uh
1: you know the, the very famously f- uh,
0: f- photographed at the end uh, mm-hmm.
1: having been arrested,
0: right? And stabbed with a bayonet, like insane insane. Absolutely insane. So this was in, you know, the late twenty nineteens, maybe around there, she she did an event for the foundation. And I asked her like how do you stay vigilant? How do you after 30 years of fighting for the, essentially the same basic, you know, acknowledgement? How can you stay optimistic? And you and you, you you know, you're not always, you know, Mr. Positivity. You obviously have some realism and and some and some real conversations that are happening, but how do you stay vigilant how do you stay a fighter how do you stay a warrior for these causes when it's like two steps forward one step back three steps forward two steps back and it, and it just seems like why does this have to be such a struggle and i'm i'm only 35 years old and i'm already exhausted in in, in the and in just seeing the uphill battle and the and the constant you just have to scrap for you know fight for scraps essentially when it comes to representation and things like how are you staying mentally strong and able to continue fighting for these causes um well uh
1: it, i was very angry in my 20s you know and very angry i was angry at everybody i was angry at my dad a lot i was angry at my family i was a terrible terrible partner uh and, and you know just a just a very angry negative person and um you know thankfully a lot of those people who i treated so badly uh in those days because i was really angry at myself i was really angry at my own fears and my own anxieties my own insecurities Uh, many of those people have forgiven me and uh you know never given up on me and and i always wondered why that was right like why was it that that uh that people stuck with me and and uh one day uh one of my elders pat Ningwants who's just a wonderful language teacher she, uh, you know, I was really struggling with writing and thinking about things and trying to be positive. And, and she said, uh, go back to the creation story, go back to our creation stories of people. And our creation story talks about the creation of humanity. And what uh, there's this line in the creation story, which talks about how, when humans were made, they were made from the kindness of love, they were made out they were made out of the beauty of gifts. They were made out of the power of the earth and they were made out of the different directions that everything in creation gave a gift, so that human beings could exist, and that our job is to give those gifts back that's what our job is for the rest of our life. That is a principle that I have adopted in everything that I do, so I believe in the goodness of humanity and at times people may think that was weird coming from you because you're constantly talking about racism and violence and genocide. But uh, I need, I, you know, I ask you to find any other writer, any other columnist, any other person anywhere who loves humanity. Like I do, you know Um, I'm not telling you that I am the great Gandhi or, you know, anyone else, but I'm telling you that I, that I believe in humans. I believe in, in the power and the goodness of us at the best of times, because I see it. I see it all the time. Um, there's a really beautiful story that, uh, that my daughter told me just recently. And um, and uh, she said to me one time, she, uh, this was at the, you know, before COVID, but, but she said, uh, she said, Daddy, I want to dance jingle dress at our school assembly. And I said, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that. Uh, like, that's a terrible idea. Like, and she said, Daddy, what do you mean? And I said, well, what if somebody makes fun of you? And what if someone says something mean to you? Or when I was in school, the people who were the most racist was the teachers, the people who would say terrible things to me. As they're good people, but they had learned obviously terrible things about indigenous peoples, because they were constantly saying racist things to me and thinking that that was like. Somehow either encouraging or they'd often say you know the most racist thing I ever heard in my life was why are you different like, why are you different than other indigenous peoples and it would be because I, w- I liked going to class. Like, talk about, like, probably the most racist thing you could say. So basically, what you're saying is all Indigenous peoples hate class or hate school. Why don't you think about the fact why Indigenous peoples hate school, then you might think about yourself, that you have something to do with that. But anyways, so I said to my daughter, don't do that, that sounds awful. And she goes, Daddy, I'm going to do it. And I said, I said, okay, well, like, I want you to be prepared for what if someone says something mean to you, or something says something racist to you, or and uh, she says, "Daddy, if somebody says something awful to me, my friends will get them. Oh yeah. And then I said, "Like, like why? Like, like what's that about?" And and she said, "It's my friends who want me to dance in the jingle dress for the assembly. They're the ones who are telling me to do it." And I know that I'm never alone. Like I won't be alone when I'm there. And uh, I thought about that, and I thought about how this generation, the youth of today, uh, you know many of my daughter's friends are non-Indigenous, but they've learned more about residential schools than any other Canadians in history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the young people who are today understand that they are treaty people. Most of the young people of today understand, and at least are talking about the issues of reconciliation and how are we going to live together? And they're, and they're talking about the most important thing of all, which is the environment. And so my generation never did that i would say the generation behind me never did that but my daughter's generation is beginning it and now my daughter has a different level of shame than i had Mm -hmm. i would actually almost garner to say that she has almost no shame like she she's proudly uses her cree anishinaabe name she proudly talks about being anishinaabe and cree and and leading big climate change marches and she, most important of all, she's the editor of her school newspaper, and every single piece that she's written, although probably slightly influenced by me, <laughs> every single piece that she's written has been about her being a young Anishinaabe Indigenous woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she has no shame. Like, I would never have told people. I used to tell people I was Spanish when I was in high school. I, and they'd be like, aren't you Sinclair the most Indigenous? And I'd be like, "Sinclair? You know, like, like I, th- I tried to convince people I was Spanish. And... and Yeah, Like, that shows you what it's like to go from, uh, you know, a young person who is in his 20s, confused and mad at the world, to a person who's a father now in his 40s, and be able to look and see change. And in only 20 years of my life, that's happened. If that much change can happen in 20 years, then what is another 20 look like if we keep at it? And we stay dedicated because it wasn't me that started this, right? It was m- not even my father. Um, it was my grandfather, you know, fighting in World War II. It was my other grandfather who bravely, uh, you know, re- regardless of his upbringing of being quite grown up. I mean, big conservative party supporter, big uh, rural, man, rural um, Canadian supporter. You know, in many ways, would be every part of the most divisive when it came to Indigenous peoples, uh, took it upon himself to help my dad start his law firm. Because you don't leave your son in law out to dry. And, and you know, my his Indigenous son in law, and, and you know, that like that, that kind of those kinds of moments are live within my family, we live within my community and and I uh, you know, I see such opportunity. Uh, One more story, and then I'll no, please. The other night, we raised the flag at the uh, investors group field, RIG field down here in Winnipeg for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And you know, Wade Miller, who is the CEO of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who's a friend of mine, asked me a few weeks before he said, you know, I want to do something this season, and I want to do something with two things I want to do. I want to do uh, an honoring of Orange Shirt Day, which is at the October 8th game, we're going to do all the players are going to come out in orange, we're going to paint the field orange, we're going to nice. talk about we're going to have a real frank conversation of what it means to be Canadian at a football game with arguably, uh, you know, don't take this the wrong way bomber fans, but you tend to be a bit older, you tend to be a, a group of people who sometimes are quite stringent in your views. And the CEO of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers wants to not leave you behind. He wants us all to have a conversation together. And then what he said was, the second thing I want to do is I want to raise the flags of Treaty 1 and of the Métis Nation in IG Field. And I want to put them right beside as important as Canada, Manitoba. I want to make them as important as everything else. And he said that uh, we're not going to ask for permission. Uh, We're not going to apologize. We're not going to, if we make a mistake, we're going to accept it. All we're going to do is we're going to invite Indigenous peoples, and they gave you know thirty some tickets to in, to First Nations and uh, Métis peoples to come and say raise the flag however you want, and then thirty thousand people cheered it mm-hmm. right before the championship banner unveiling, and you know that's a tiny little thing. It really doesn't mean a lot in this in this big specter of things, but it shows you the opportunity that we have in this generation in 2021, just as much as my daughter's friends saying that they'll stand up for her. Beautiful.
0: That actually, yeah. Thank you for bringing back a little bit of my optimism because exact same story when in my teens and twenties, I was like, just such a negative person. And just, and I think starting at the foundation really helped see and talking to people like you and starting this podcast and just, there are so many good people in the world and the world is trending in the right direction. We're going in the right way, but I just kind of tend to get a little bit stuck on. The negative things that put that pop up but but thank you that was a, a wonderful answer i want to dig down a little bit into what you mentioned about the next generation and their relationship to the environment because i think indigenous ways of knowing had we followed them for the last 100 years we would not be in the predicament that we are as far as climate crisis is concerned can you speak a little bit to um i don't know much i know a little bit i've, I've spent a little bit of time learning and listening um to elders and stuff but I I really like the concept of, you know, the river, the rocks, the trees, they are your family members. They are people that we need to support and take care of. And you wouldn't throw your garbage into your neighbor's face. So why are we throwing it into the river? And, and, you know, just basic concepts like that. Can you just talk a little bit about the indigenous ways of knowing when it comes to the environment and and how we can use that path to sort of guide us forward and try, excuse me, trying to preserve and, and maintain our, our environment?
1: Yeah, so probably the number one teaching that any Indigenous culture has, I mean, almost every single, uh, almost every single Indigenous culture, I've never heard of one that doesn't, so I don't want to leave it, you know, be a totalistic, but, but I can say that I've never heard of an Indigenous culture that doesn't have a main principle, and the principle is that the local matters, that the earth matters, that the earth is that is what gives us more than we ever give back. And within our creation story I talked about that a bit earlier it, it talks about being set down when it when in human beings were made, they were accepted and adopted by creation, meaning that we were made we, we were brought into a family. And uh, we didn't invent the idea of family, the, the idea of family was gifted to us, meaning that we became cousins, we were adopted as cousins or as brothers and sisters, and so it's not a. It's not a choice. Like, like I think one of the biggest mistakes people can do is to call Indigenous peoples environmentalists because we're not. We're not environmentalists. We are lifeists. We believe in life. That the good life, and this is a law that we have called Uh, The good life is better when everybody has life. Because when everybody has life, nobody fights. There's no struggle over territories, and almost anything is possible. We can come together like h- hold hands and send people to the universe like we could do anything if we decide that we're going to work together right and we're going to share and we're not going to create the one percent right we're not going to create this idea of have and have nots but we're going to have everybody be haves well that may sound optimistic or that may sound uh, rose-colored glasses or but you know, the, the principle for indigenous peoples is that when we create life, then we have to share that life around us. And that may be a song or a gift, or like one of the things when we go hunting that we have to make sure the entire community is fed. Mm. It's not about saying, oh, one person gets to keep all the moose meat. No, it's our job to spread the moose meat through the community. One is because your freezer's never big enough, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but then the second and far more important is that, you know, it's not our job to hoard. Because if everybody hoarded, then nobody would eat, because even those who hoard will run out of food eventually, and nobody will share with you. These are basic community principles around sustainability and life and, and being a good person. Like this is a whole principle that seems to be lost in Western culture and civilization, which is that You know, nobody wins with capitalism. Like nobody wins with individualism. Nobody wins when you just say, okay, your job is only to spend for yourself, not anyone else, just yourself. Well, if nobody fends for anyone else, then it's all just war Mm -hmm. and conflict and, and struggle and competition. Like the fact is that the earth gives us all the time. And when we gift back to the earth songs or stories or time, Or the idea of not tossing our garbage back to the earth taking care of her as much as she takes care of us because she will beat us every time Mm -hmm. if we give that tiny little bit back we will give life to others we will give life to our children and to our community and if there's air to breathe life will will continue on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not so sure if there's not water to drink or earth to live on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that may be what we'll be running out is that we we have forgotten that there are gifts all around us and we have to take care of those gifts as much as they take care of us. And the most important principle of all is that, um, like you and I can get along together all day. And this is a basic premise that is in Anishinaabe law. You and I can get along together. We can call it a treaty. We can say, okay, I'm going to give you, uh, you know, a wonderful place to live. You can give me uh, some education, like whatever that might be. Our exchanges, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if we got nothing to drink. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter if we got nothing to eat. Like I don't give a care how good the treaties go. We can say we're treaty people who are blue in the face, and we literally will be blue in the face because there'll be nothing to breathe. Yeah, like. So the key here is to understand a really basic principle, which is that uh, when indigenous peoples are talking about the earth, we're not talking about being environmentalists, we're talking about creating a beneficial world around us based within our own law. Or a basic way of thinking about it is, there's no point in singing bear songs or talking about your fish clan, which is what I am. Uh, There's no point in uh, telling a story about um, the earth and the water If there's none of those things left, like, why would you sing a bear song if there's no bears? So when we go out and we march and we say let's protect the bears. We're not environmentalists, we are, we are protecting the foundational part of our identities, which is our connection to place our connection to the earth and the fact that the bears teach us far more than we can ever teach the bears. Like, in fact, I don't think the bears can learn much from us except for you know how to ruin the earth and how to be mean to each other the bears actually teach us how to find the medicine how to create positive and relationships in a territory respectful relationships and bears mark trees and tell us about love and tell us about dreams and and how to share space and uh, so you know bears can teach us far more than we can ever teach the bears so why don't we adopt that principle with the earth and the sky and the water and and the fact is that you you know people want to say a lot about indigenous rights right because there is no environmental law in Canada that matters. Every environmental law just changes whenever a government wants to build a pipeline or a bridge. They just change the law. But the one thing they cannot change is to erase Indigenous rights, because it's in the Constitution, Section 35. And what that means is is that every Canadian should realize a fundamental fundamental tenet that the only people that can legally protect the land. Our indigenous peoples because we can say that when you build that pipeline it hurts the bears that therefore it hurts our rights to exist as indigenous peoples therefore don't build the pipeline mm-hmm. and they can change the law all day and change the navigable that's what harper did change the navigable protections act change the ways that indian land can be taken without any recognition from the community or or consent from the community they can do all the law changing, but they can't change the Constitution. And the Constitution says that Indigenous rights must be recognized. And, you know, what the whole funny thing is, is that when people when are marching or setting up uh, blockades or called protesters, you know, Jason Kenney passes laws, Brian Pallister passes laws saying that Indigenous peoples can enforce their legally protected rights. Mm-hmm. What they are doing is they are they are forcing Canadians to accept environmental attacks. Uh, assaults on rights, and the most important thing of all is that we're not going to have any water to drink at the end because the only people that can protect the environment are Indigenous peoples. And so what Canadians should do is, every time you see a march, realize that it's it's not a march for Indigenous peoples, it's a march for you. It's a march that you can have water and air to breathe and, and earth to live on. And so it's not about saying that, you know, they're a bunch of terrorists, which is what politicians will call us. But what it's saying is that we are people who are standing up for you in Charleswood. Yes. You in Transcona. Yes. You in Winkler. We're, we're marching for you. Yeah. Come and march with us.
0: It's beautifully said. I feel like I'm jealous of all of your students that get to, you know, hear you lecture and, and have these conversations in class. Can we talk a little a bit about your about your academics a little bit? Um, when I first met you we we talked about a old wrestling character that was a st- I just want to kind of talk about indigenous represent- representation in pop culture and, and how important that is. Um, do you want to tell the story about like Tatanka and, and the, w- the old WWF character?
1: I, I think when I was talking to you I was just giving my academic read of the character, the wrestling character Tatanka. <laughs> but you know there is this history of Indigenous wrestlers throughout time. I grew up with wrestling, and honestly, if you go up north in northern Manitoba, there is nothing bigger than wrestling when it comes to the reserve. You know, know all the youth, boys and girls, but mostly boys, uh, really get into wrestling because it kind of gets into this kind of uh, a lot of stereotypes, a lot of images, a lot of hyper-masculine images. For sure. Um, I'm not telling you that wrestling is a positive growth, but it certainly is an identity creation for a lot of young Indigenous men Mm -hmm. like myself. And so when when I'm talking about it, what I'm really talking about is like, how do Indigenous men create our identities? Mm. And a lot of us are built on those characters, not just Tatanka, but also like Hulk Hogan, like uh, The Ultimate Warrior. I remember my dad watched The Ultimate Warrior when I was a kid and he said,
0: he sounds an Ishnabe. Well, he has the face paint, the face paint, and the you know the bright colors, and a lot everything. of stereotypes,
1: yeah. and so on. Yeah. And, and you know, I think my dad was what he was trying to do is he was trying to you know because in every representation there is something that can be said about what you can and cannot be, or about that mm. you that you you could or could not be. You know, every representation. Um, has value in that it says something about the people making the representation Mm. and it says something about the society and the attitude at the time that's why I love comics so much you know Mm. most of my research is in comic books and. I love comics because it's the most popular medium like if you said to yourself what's the top 10 selling books in North America this week, it would not be novels god's sakes would not be poetry, but yet we spend all this time studying novels and poetry. I'm not telling you they're they're worthless, but I'm telling you that if you want to know what America's thinking or Canada's thinking, look at comic books because comic books outsell novels and poetry like fifty to one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like so, if you want to know what people are actually thinking in society, look at the what graphic novels and comic books are doing because co- they actually tell you sort of the finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world. And so comic books will tell you, okay, this is the attitude that's happening at this point in the major mainstream, or here's the ways in which people are manipulating that image, people are engaging that story and telling a different story. Um, that's why, you know, I would say that the most popular, the most sellable, the most, uh, certainly the most innovative, mm-hmm. uh, some of the most innovative uh, uh, creations in indigenous literature today's in graphic novels cool it's in comic books like even marvel comics which is the big goliath of comic books mm-hmm. um, they came out with an indigenous rendition of their characters of some of the most stereotypical characters throughout time uh, and they had indigenous creators recreate them and they were really dynamic interesting stories we did a panel on it at the uh, a conference i hosted at the university of manitoba which is on youtube by the way you can look it up it's called the indigenous Comics symposium so you can check okay. it out
0: i'm googling Anyways. it now.
1: But like, uh, you know, my research is predominantly in history, culture, politics, so talking about who we are, what's happened over time, uh, teaching introduction students, but I also teach what's called aesthetics. So aesthetics is about how do Indigenous peoples talk about beauty? Hmm. How do we create art? How do we uh, create mediums like songs and poetry, but then, you know, also th- forms like comic books? Like, what is it that we do within a sense of uh, the beauty right? or aesthetics, a sense of what's the beautiful? And then how do we articulate who we are or what's called a sense of presence in this place? So and we've done it, of course, permanently throughout for thousands and thousands of years. And we do it in things like tattoos and birch bark images and and our beadwork and um, you know we do it with our gesture and our motion and our breath and we do all these different things um, in which that's what I study
0: and all different ways of all all different ways of telling stories and passing history down right and that seems to be something that you're extremely passionate about is maintaining remembering and and containing and and telling stories that have been passed down to you or you know friends and family and stuff like that. How, how important are, how serious do you take the role of storyteller as a, as one of your many, many hats that you wear?
1: Well, I don't know. I think it's the only hat I wear really Mm. because I, like I, uh, I I happened to grow up with who I think was the greatest storyteller I ever met in my life, which was my father. And my father could tell a story like nobody could tell a story. And uh, he used to read me, bedtime stories, but I don't remember the stories, but I remember him.
0: Mm.
1: I remember how much he loved telling it. I remember how he did the voices. I remember how he w- you know, would ask me questions and get me to think about the story. And I probably remember the, my favorite thing of all, which is that um, how much he enjoyed telling it. And it was impossible for me not to enjoy story when you're with someone who loves story. Uh, And so uh, I was lucky in that I was mentored by uh, the best storyteller I know, which is my father and, and, and how um, he is always uh, taught me through story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I mean by that is, is that he, uh, you know, if I have a problem, he'll tell me something. He won't tell me how to deal with it, but he'll tell me a story on how to help me understand it. Yeah. he'll tell me a story about what he experienced growing up uh he'll tell me a story about uh, um something that he heard from someone else and what he's still trying to understand from a story he heard in 1975 or whatever we're working on his memoir right now and uh it's a really fascinating exciting wow. journey for me because i get to hear stories that i've never heard him tell before cool. uh, including some of the really hard stuff like the really hard stuff that he yeah. has never told anybody you know and um even my own family. And so, uh, like everything I do somehow relates with that. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, everything I do is really tied to, uh, like people can call me an educator or a writer or, a, you know, or father, you know, but the thing that I really like to do the best is just what we're doing right now, which is just, just talking about stuff and talking about who we are and sharing and listening and, um spending time together and and uh um <laughs> you know like if you go up north and you uh you spend time on reserves uh you'll find that indigenous peoples are like phd level storytellers but they're just the anti sitting around talking
0: but and, like and hilarious too and hilarious like you're gonna yeah laugh if you cry. listen
1: to if you go up to old pasqua nation to spend a lot of time up there my daughter was born there like if you just in one afternoon, I would get more education than I did in my entire graduate degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you just be remarkable to just listen to the, the knowledge people have, not just of the land and of like the stuff we can think of as sort of traditional indigenous knowledge, but like just how to navigate relationships, how to act politically in a small community, um, how to get work done, you know, like just remarkable stuff. And the ways that people operate with one another is just, you know, far more uh, intricate, efficient than almost any business or corporation or certainly government that I see in urban areas. I see more work being done over a kitchen table in a Cree home than I do in some businesses that I worked in.
0: Yeah. It's because they have to be right. Like it has to, it had to be that way. You had to be more efficient than, you know, and at them. the end
1: here's the amazing thing is at the end, everybody's stronger. Like everybody's profited. I think right. oftentimes when you're in those business models, it's usually one person that profits or two and then everybody else loses out because it's a competition when you're in a community where everybody benefits, like that's a model that you think maybe would be able to, Give a little bit of peace, or give us some solutions in a very divided world.
0: Yeah, I feel like the the sentence that has been said most on this podcast, probably by me, is "It takes a village." And I I think some of the modern um, ways of living and the Western ways of living have kind of been like, "I'll take care of my family, you take care of your family, and, and you know, leave me alone." And what? And it's like, I grew up in a small town too, out in Russell, Manitoba, and like, <laughs> all the I have like six moms, you know. And you'd go and they'd see me, you know, causing trouble and they'd say, you know, when you get home or whatever. Right. And it, it's not just you're on your own. It's everyone takes care of everyone. And I wish that that was more ingrained in in, a, in Canadian culture and, and in all sides of the spectrum. But it just seems to be kind of like only some pockets of, of Canada live this way and, th- and and find value in that. So it's a... It's been tough to navigate and, wa- and watch the discourse kind of happen on a national scale where people are arguing to just be left alone and not be a part of things and just you handle your business, I'll handle mine. Like how, how do we how do we bridge that gap and get everyone to understand that we're all on the same team here, We're all paddling the boat, so we should be paddling in the same direction.
1: There was a kind of a funny moment, I'm not sure if it'd be, when you're talking this came to mind is uh, I wrote a column uh, where I said, Imagine if Justin Trudeau said, I'm not going to kick out Jody Wilson-Raybould from cabinet. Hmm. Like I'm actually going to figure out a way so that we all stay together. Like, and I tell that as an example, not to defend Jody Wilson-Raybould or even defend Justin Trudeau's whatever kicking out of Jody Wilson-Raybould. Like, what if we all committed to each other? Like, what if we all said there's nobody going home here, nobody's going away. We're all actually home. We're all here and that tomorrow we're all going to be here. Mm. So no matter how terrible we treat one another, no matter how much ignorance that we have, that we all got to face that together. All the solutions will come from us. Mm. Like it blows me away that the premier of Manitoba has so little knowledge of indigenous peoples. Like just blatant ignorance of Manitoban history, culture, and then you know, then doubles down on it.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and the idea that nobody has stood up to that until very recently, well, till yeah, in his own party.
0: It. Yeah.
1: It 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 blows my mind. But it also blows my mind when people, you know, oust each other from yes. communities and from parties and yeah. and from you know from uh, You know families for like because we're all in this together so like what did you think yeah like what do you think is going to happen like we're all going to be have to face each other tomorrow so that means that like for decades for a century and a half every canadian has been taught that indigenous peoples are worthless second-class citizens deficient like did we not think that's going to affect us in some way like did we not think that we got to eventually do something about that And that's not giving anybody extra or, you know, oh, indigenous peoples want all these things, or, oh, why do we got to take another session? Why do we got to do another territorial acknowledgement? Why do we got to do another session where we talk about indigenous inclusion? Well, like, what did we think? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's the game here, yeah. When you you ignore and, you know, steal someone's land, commit genocide for 150 years, there will, the pendulum will swing because we're not... Like, th- we're not just all disappearing. We're not we that we're The not reality
0: separate, of yeah.
1: living together.
0: Yeah.
1: And if this is a democracy, which is like it purports to be, or at times pretends to be, if we truly live in a democracy in which everybody matters, then everybody matters.
0: hmm yeah, I it, we I did an Indigenous Canada training through through the foundation and just learned a lot and, and it all comes down to how you frame it because I feel like when we were brought up and educated on on residential schools, it was like oh that happened to them, that happened to a different and then just reframing that to that happened to Canadian children like that happened to your brothers and sisters and how are you not enraged by that I was like yeah exactly like it just it, it sometimes it's subtle in how people talk about how things went down but if you just frame it as that happened to you to canadian children like are are you how are you not riding in the street. streets
1: i'm not 100 percent interested in in uh imposing the notion of canadian on first nations children because i mean okay, I gotcha. not not their choice but what i would say is that treaties created families right so i mean they are your niece and nephew So your family members had those impacts to them and what I would also say is that Canadian children, like the Canadian children who are in the Canadian towns. They all learned the same curriculum as the residential school kids they learned that indigenous peoples were savage and inferior and that Canadians are better than indigenous peoples. And that's the that is exactly what we see today everything in Canadian society is built on two basic ideas. Indigenous peoples are inferior and Canadians are superior and none of neither which are true, Canadians are not superior. Indigenous peoples are not inferior. And but yet we live in a society in which a Manitoba Premier, a Canadian Prime Minister, business owners would have this terrible idea that Indigenous rights are somehow oppositional, Mm. or that Indigenous peoples marching down a street talking about a guy, a young Cree guy shot in Saskatchewan, somehow that's like anti-white in some way, or the really most horrendous idea of all, which is that Indigenous peoples aren't interested and in engaged in having all of our children survive, mm-hmm. all of our children thrive and, and enjoy these wonderful riches around us, and that, um, that
0: th- we could all join together in the march. Right. Yeah. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to like impose Canadian or like say that that was the same. It just helped me kind no, of, no, just,
1: it, it, I get what you're doing though. Yeah, I, it, like it makes it, sense. It,
0: it helped me to, to both come to terms with what it means to be Canadian. And also that like, what if, you know, just frame it differently. It, it's not them. It's us. Like we're all in this together. We're, we're, it doesn't matter what you call yourself or, I mean, it does, but like, that's unacceptable. <laughs> it's just so unacceptable that it just boggled my mind that as a child, I wasn't really like, it wasn't framed to me that way. But yeah, no, I, I, I don't mean to be. Well, I, what like I
1: do uncle. is, is I, what I say to people in our community is, you know, the person that you walk by on the street uh, in whatever condition that they are, they could be wearing a suit. They could be in uh, rags, and with uh, trying to collect a quarter from you, or they're both your uncle. Mm. They're both your auntie and that means that we all have a responsibility to be honest with one another to help one another where needed to also to challenge one another right like it's our job to be in a family where no one's going anywhere.
0: Very well said. Yeah, I think that's a great place to, to wrap up the, the first part of our discussion. Um, the, the last kind of 5-10 minutes is a segment we call Just Because, where I ask the same seven questions to all of my guests. It's all about the causes that you're that you're passionate about and the effect that it's had on your life, thus the, the title, Because and Effect. You okay to do that with us? Yeah, sure. I'm ready. Okay, fantastic. Question one. What is the very first cause you even remember caring about back 40 years
1: ago-ish? <laughs> 40 years ago. Um, I, I think it was probably hunger, right? Mm. Hunger was the one that was probably the most uh, impactful to me. One of the things that my, um, my father and my mother always did was uh, bring food to people who were, uh, they weren't street people, but they were people who were hungry. There were people in our community who didn't have a lot. And uh, always sharing Mm -hmm. like that was so I would say that that the number one cause that I saw witnessing growing up is helping others. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid I was very young kid and I remember it was an icy night, it was one of those minus 50 degree Winnipeg nights and we were driving on Salter avenue in Winnipeg and. um, I remember my dad suddenly slamming on the brakes and stopping the car right in the middle of the street. And then he jumped out and we were, you know, I was a kid. I was like, and my remember my sister was in her kid's seat. So it must've been like 83, maybe 84. and uh, And I remember my dad getting out and then, you know I saw him through the windshield Uh, helping this guy who had fallen down in the middle of the street. Mm. And uh, I didn't know, you know, what he looked like or whatever. I found out later that he was a First Nations or Native guy and he had been drinking too much. And my dad had just helped him. And then my dad just basically walked this guy into his house and he was in there for quite a while. And we came back to the car. I said, Hey dad, where'd you go? And he said, "Uh, I was trying to convince the guy not to, I didn't want to have a drink with him. (laughs) So, and, and it was, you know, like, Like that that, that's who my dad is. My dad is always a person to help others. And so that was what I saw growing up.
0: Beautiful, great answer, thank you. Uh, Question two, if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen, what would you do in support of your current number one cause?
1: Uh, I would convince every Canadian or I would somehow, uh, if you're saying politics and logistics are not the challenge, mm-hmm. that we don't have to depend on oil and fossil fuels to, to survive into the next future, that we have many options and technologies that can help us
0: to live sustainably and that we won't kill one another. Yeah, beautiful. Great answer. Uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause?
1: I think the people think oil and pipelines are the only methods to uh to uh, a life to power fabulous. society yeah to power, and, to uh, power and the fact is that that is that is the road to ruin and fossil fuels will always be the road to ruin and the problem is that once we uh get off that with which is an addiction you know mm-hmm. like like fossil fuels is an addiction uh the sooner that we can you know, go to rehab mm-hmm. and begin to realize that it is uh, an illusion The world that we live under and we may just not need all the cell phones and cars and profit that we have and we all like it don't get me wrong like I have a car as well, but um, it may just be that we all have to give a little to live.
0: I think the pandemic has actually really opened that conversation. Up. at least with me and my friends and family. it's like, what are what's really necessary? Like, what do we really need to survive and to thrive, right? And I, I think a lot of those things were like, do we do we need all all the sort of trappings of modern society? and and, and I, I I've been actually very like, enthused about the responses that i'm getting having these conversations people are really questioning sort of the you know just the the mindless shoveling coal into the fire for the last 30 years it's like where are we going with this what's the end game here and i think
1: and at the end of the day what's the number one thing that people wanted uh to sit with their relatives in their yard or in a parking lot or like like it, it it never occurred to me Uh, actually my mother my my sorry my daughter said this to me she said uh, when I get out of this pandemic I just want to go visit grandma Uh like that's all exactly that's all I want to do I just want to go and uh, have tea with grandma and uh, like that's I mean it's amazing how that's the at the end of at the end of it that's all that
0: really matters sounds like a wise young woman I love it uh, question four, what is a recent victory or a, you know, a personally, a W that you've gotten recently that you're, that you're happy with or proud of?
1: Uh, well, I can tell you that the the proudest moment of my career, I think, or of my life was the, uh, uh, the lodge that we built at the Forks. Mm. Um, it's something that I've always wanted to do. And it's something that I really believed our community needed. And it's something that I really, uh, in my heart felt Very full when it was happening. And it all came together in a beautiful, perfect way, the ways that the best things do. So, um, but that wouldn't have come without a lot of help from, frankly, the Winnipeg Foundation is a good example. But, but the, you know, the leadership at the Forks and all of my family, like all of my relatives, Mm -hmm. and the fact, you know, that we had that lodge only because of those children in residential schools that fought to keep that knowledge, right? Mm. That they didn't get a chance to have that knowledge. They only had it for one season usually. And they were sent to residential school for 12, 13 years and, you know, nine, 10, 12, whatever, whatever, how many years it was. And they had to, you know, focus on remembering that for us to have it today. And the fact that we're able to put it up in a space where we would have been arrested only 40 years ago, that's significant.
0: I went down there to, to film a little, you know, just a bunch, uh, just to kind of capture the moment. And it it was a really serene, like I'm not, you know, I'm not really much for energies or, you know, that kind of like stuff. But I could feel, it just felt, it was raining really softly. And it just, it, it was a really beautiful and serene and just calming sort of a, an area there. And I and I, I don't know, it, it made me really sort of second guess, like, do I believe in, what do I believe in, you know? And it, it was really nice, but yeah. Great answer. Uh, question five: What is the best advice that you've ever been given? Uh, to make someone laugh is the greatest gift of all. Beautiful, I love it. Do you uh, go out to? Are you excited to go out to comedy shows again when this whole thing finally shakes down? Oh, I'm a terrible. Well, uh,
1: you know, I'm a I'm a terrible uh, uh, comedian. I tried it,
0: <laughs> but but I uh,
1: you know I can tell you that. Uh, My favorite part of my being around my family is just how funny we are and how much I enjoy spending goofing around with my sisters and, and how, uh, you know, just how, you know, I just, that's my favorite part of, and um, uh, it was my dad who gave me that advice when I was young, he said Mm -hmm. that the, the greatest gift you can give somebody is make them laugh
0: my best friends in the world are the ones who can, who make me cry or, you know, make me laugh till I cry. So yeah, I love that answer. Beautiful. Uh, question six, staying on the advice train, what advice would you give your 10 year old self? If you could go back in time and talk to him?
1: Hmm. Uh, I'd tell him to worry less, uh, because everything he's worrying about is not as much worry as you think. And the things that um, I wouldn't go back and change anything, like, uh, but I can tell you that uh, I obsessed a lot about things that were completely out of my control, and that I couldn't change. And uh, the best things that have ever happened are things that I, uh, I just put my hands up to creation and said, well, whatever is going to happen, it's going to happen. And the, the very best things that have ever happened are because of the people that I've met and the people that I've worked with and the relationships that I've built. And so, uh, you know, the greatest thing that I've ever happened, like I never planned on being a dad
0: mm.
1: and, but yet it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And so when it happened, I just put up my arms to creation and said, I don't really know what the heck I'm doing here. I don't really know if I'm going to be a good dad or not. Um, I'm super scared of it, but I'm going to try my best and I'm gonna use the things that I think I know are right. And uh, every day my little girl teaches me, she's not little anymore, she's 15, but like every day she teaches me the very best parts of myself.
0: Beautiful, love it. Uh, Nigam, thank you so much. I, I really treasure and I'm so grateful that I get, get to have these conversations and I've got to meet you and get to know you a little bit. Um, so thank you very much. The last question is usually the hardest one. Uh, it's what do you wanna be remembered for?
1: Uh, I would love it if something I wrote, uh, you know, like, okay, so um, I had a moment uh, about, I don't know, a week ago, maybe less actually, I think it was Friday night, maybe Thursday night? No. Yeah, Thursday night. And uh, I was in the, uh, uh, I, was, I did the Treaty 1 and Métis flag raising at the Blue Bomber Game. And of course, the first time you're with all on all those people and mm-hmm. a lot of them weren't wearing masks. And so it was very anxiety. I was wearing my mask the whole time and uh, somebody recognized me. And it was uh, one of my students and she had taken my class back in 2012, my very first year that I was a professor. And uh, she came up to me and she said, oh, my God, I can't believe it's you. You 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 taught me in, in my first year of class and it changed my life. And that's it then she just walked away <laughs> and oh. like that never gets old no kidding yeah like that never gets old like the idea that as a teacher somebody comes back to you and just remembers you or you said something that was helpful or that you said something like um the most important thing of all which is that i love you you know and i believe in you and and i care for you uh those moments if that's all I'm remembered for is that I said something kind to somebody at one point, or that I helped them, or that I, uh, I helped build the relationship, and if that's something I wrote or something I said or, or something that I did, then that's good enough for me. I mean, I, I don't like to uh, give any illusions that I'm going to be remembered for anything in this life. Uh, what I do hope is that I'm remembered for uh, uh, doing some things that were that help make people's lives a little bit better.
0: Beautifully said, Nigan. Thank you so much, Miigwech, Appreciate your time. Um, yeah, we uh, I c- cannot express my gratitude enough for for just being able to hear your wisdom and and just listen in awe about all your perspectives and all your history and all your stories. So thank you so so very much. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Well, Miigwech, Nolan. Thanks for having me and. Uh, uh, yeah, this was much more in depth than I thought it was going to be.
0: <laughs> you know, we never really know where it's going to go, but I, I, you you lived up to the hype. So thanks so much.
1: Uh, well, miigwech. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to seeing you whenever it comes up online.
0: again to Negan Sinclair. Uh, incredible conversation. I'm really grateful you took the time to share your thoughts with us. Um, I really could listen to Negan talk forever. Like, very similar actually to his father, Justice Murray Sinclair. Um, I heard Nigan's dad lecture at the University of Winnipeg a few years ago, and it was a really kind of a weirdly magical night. Like, just, you know, everyone was hung on every, on every word that um, Justice Sinclair was talking about, so you know, such a great storyteller. And like Negan said, um, so much wisdom. So yeah. And I think the apple doesn't really far fall from the tree this time. Negan and, uh, his father are very similar. So yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Um, thank you for joining us today all music on this show is produced and composed by trenton burton you can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com because in effect is a podcast from the winnipeg foundation and to learn more about what the foundation is up to you can follow us on social media at wpgfdn on most social media platforms twitter instagram facebook youtube linkedin uh, i think that's probably all of them there might, there might be more who knows Uh, If you aren't on social media, you can visit our website at www.wpgfdn.org, like I said, or follow them on social. I'm at Nolan Bicknell on all social media platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and thank you for subscribing to the podcast as well. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. And remember, healing doesn't mean the damage never existed. It means the damage no longer controls our lives. Bye-bye.